The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I was all set to record a few poems here when I came across something that made sort of a firestorm in the poetry community of Twitter a few months ago. And it was interesting enough that I thought to mention it here. And it is a tweet that said this. It says, I wish poets understood that the general population has no interest in what we do. So when we speak, we are speaking only to each other. The delusion that poetry is something powerful is a straight line to all kinds of toxic positivities that are really just us lying to ourselves. Now, a lot of people were apparently angered by this. Uh, They don't like the idea that poets are only speaking to each other and that poetry is not powerful or influential, perhaps in the way that others would like it to be. Um, So that on the one hand, um, I thought that this is sort of a healthy outlook, that poets shouldn't expect to have the renown or the influence of politicians or or the anecdotal influence or attention that movie stars get. But nobody else seemed to notice something about this, and that is the, that is the phrase toxic positivities. For me, this strikes me, that someone who uses a phrase like that strikes me as someone who is very comfortable in the uh, academic world of jargon and buzzwords and phrases like that, They don't even realize that they're using them, that they're talking in ways that other people just don't talk. And it struck me that the author of this tweet, rather than trying to insult poets, and the majority of poets today, wasn't really doing that. She seemed to be saying, at least to me, that it's not only is it okay that we are only, that poets are only speaking to each other, and that poetry is not socially powerful, that, uh, that, that poets cannot change the world the way a new law or the dropping of a bomb can. But she almost seems to be saying that it's better that way. It's good that poets don't have that kind of influence. And that's an important distinction to make. Um, but from my point of view, I've spent an awful long time studying and reading and sort of cheerleading the poetry that has been important to the cultures that they were a part of. I'm thinking, of course, of Homer. I'm thinking of the poets of the Norse Eddas and the Norse Sagas, the poets of the Hebrew Bible. Um, So many examples you can come to. And even, uh, even Shakespeare, 
who uh, who was immensely popular in his own day and remains obviously popular today. And I'm thinking even of Seamus Heaney, who after he died, uh, two minutes of silence were given to Seamus Heaney in a soccer stadium, in a football stadium in Ireland that was packed with 70,000 people. And, and then I remembered a story that I told here uh, a few months ago an anecdote that I heard from, I believe it took place in 9th or 10th century Ireland, where you have the provinces, provinces of Ireland, and it was very difficult to cross over those borders without someone's approval, but that poets, um, uh, unlike many other, many other classes of people, poets were given the special distinction of being able to go basically wherever they wanted whenever they wanted without any special permission. And it strikes me that the author of that tweet would not want poetry, would not want her poetry especially, to have that kind of importance in the world. And it struck me that the kind of importance that we're talking about is usually the importance that is given to what we call the myths or the folklore of a given people or in the case of Shakespeare, where he borrowed plots and reinvigorated them, just the stories that were generally popularly in the air. Or we have the idea of poets working either with the religious scripture or the religious liturgy of a culture. And this is simply not something that the author of this tweet wants to get involved in. It seems awfully messy. Uh, getting involved with whatever structures are involved in, in doing things like that. But it strikes me that if we want poetry to be important again, to have an impact again, that is the kind of importance, that is the kind of area that it needs to go into. And of course, for me, that has meant uh, narrative poetry, poetry that tells a story, and poetry that tells or retells or reinvigorates stories that people are already uh, familiar with. And for me, lately, the greatest example of that will come when I read, uh, when I do my next episode on the great myths, but I'll just summarize it in a minute here. And that is the wonderful Irish story, which again comes from the ninth, originates in the ninth or 10th century in Ireland, and that is the story of the love story of Diarmut and Granny, which, when you when you uh, sum it all up, is basically the story of an elopement. Uh, a woman named Granny is meant to be married off to a much older man, but at the wedding feast, uh, she ends up running off with uh, Diarmut instead. And the story is basically of their travels through Ireland with the uh, uh, with the insulted groom following behind and trying to catch them. And as with the other Irish stories that I've read in the Great Myths series, uh, this becomes an excuse to talk about the mythology and the importance of topography and of naming places. And what the translator has to say about uh, about the story was very interesting. And he said that on the one hand, you have the literary version of the story, 
But on the other hand, you have the folk or popular version of the story, the, the version of the story that was spread not by book, but by word of mouth. And he said that these versions of the story, almost like the versions of Gilgamesh, and uh, I'm sure of many others that we could think of if we took five minutes out, um, these versions were told and retold in a more local setting. And the translator said these stories became so popular and that the people who heard them became so attached to the story that they looked around their own landscape and they saw the hill over there, the cave over there, the mountain over there, the pile of old stones over there. And they began to identify those local places as spots where Diarmut and Granny had slept on their travels throughout Ireland. Uh, they became so enamored with this story and the story became so entirely their own that that is what they did with it. And that is really my answer to the question of whether poetry can be important anymore. I don't see anything wrong with the tweet. I don't see anything wrong with seeing that this is what poetry, ha this is what has happened to poetry lately and simply stating the fact that people outside of poetry usually don't care what poets are doing. But uh, this podcast exists in a way to just show the other side, to say, if you want poetry to be important in people's lives again, this is the way, uh, not necessarily to do it, but uh, it's good to study the examples of poetry that did last and that did inform civilizations and did inform cultures and were highly influential in those cultures. It's worth studying what kind of poetry that was, what kind of stories they told, and how they interacted with the wider public and the wider people. Because it's worth saying that that is possible to revive again uh, at some later date, if not in 2021 or 2022. In any case, that is just a prologue to these handful of poems that I was planning to read before I came across that story. The first poem is by R.S. Thomas, and this is his poem called Affinity. And it says this, Consider this man in the field beneath, gaitered with mud, lost in his own breath, without joy, without sorrow, without children, without wife, stumbling insensitively from furrow to furrow, a vague somnambulist. But hold your tears, for his name also is written in the book of life. Ransack your brain box, pull out the drawers that rot in your heart's dust, and what have you to give to enrich his spirit? or the way he lives. From the standpoint of education, or caste, or creed, is there anything to show that your essential need is less than his, who has the world for church, and stands bareheaded in the wood's wide porch, morning and evening, to hear God's choir scatter their praises? Don't be taken in by stinking garments, or a nameless grin, 
he also is human, and the same small star that lights you homeward has inflamed his mind with the old hunger born of his kind. And of course, that is another response to the uh, to the idea that poetry does not matter, and that is to say, yes, indeed, uh, poetry does not matter. Uh, this person that R.S. Thomas is describing is living a life without poetry, or you might say without uh, uh, what someone might call sophisticated culture, and they're doing just fine. They don't need it. Um, I wrote some time ago uh, in an essay that it is a wonderful thought to think how much I have, uh, how much, how much solace, I guess is the word, I have gotten from uh, one of Beethoven's late string quartets. And then an almost equal amount of humongous solace has come from realizing that almost everyone who has ever lived in the world has never heard that piece of music, and yet they got along just fine without having heard it. Um, this next poem is one of Emily Dickinson's, and uh, I think as, as someone said a long time ago, uh, it should be impossible that someone should be able to put this much into such a small poem, and yet here it is. The props assist the house until the house is built, and then the props withdraw and adequate erect the house supports itself, and cease to recollect the auger and the carpenter. Just such a retrospect hath the perfected life a past of plank and nail and slowness, then the scaffolds drop, affirming it a soul. Now that's worth reading again. The props assist the house, until the house is built, and then the props withdraw and, adequate, erect, the house supports itself, and ceases to recollect the auger and the carpenter. Just such a retrospect, hath the perfected life, a past of plank and nail and slowness, then the scaffolds drop, affirming it a soul. And Dickinson's life as well is sort of a, sort of an answer there. Um, I don't think she was quite worried one way or another what poetry did or didn't do. Um, as usual, she is standing in the corner, uh, uh, criticizing everyone, every point of view or opinion on poetry. Or actually, she's not even looking at us, she's writing her poems instead. This next one is another short poem, and this is Shakespeare's 27th sonnet. And it says... Weary with toil, I haste me to my bed. The dear repose for limbs with travel tired, But then begins a journey in my head To work my mind when body's work's expired. For then my thoughts, from far where I abide, 
intend a zealous pilgrimage to thee, and keep my drooping eyelids open wide, looking on darkness which the blind do see. Save that my soul's imaginary sight presents thy shadow to my sightless view, which, like a jewel hung in ghastly night, makes black night beauteous and her old face new. Lo, thus, by day my limbs, by night my mind, for thee and for myself no quiet find. Lo, thus, by day my limbs, by night my mind, for thee and for myself no quiet find. It strikes me that all of these poems, and I'm sure uh, everyone out there who's listening to this could send me a list of four or five more, that uh, outlasted the world leading up to when Twitter existed, and they will outlast the death of Twitter probably in the next ten years, and whatever comes along to replace it, and whatever comes along to replace the uh, academic anxieties about how language is not up to the expressive abilities of human experience, and it's biased, and all of this, um, there will still be powerful language. There will still be powerful things and meaningful things to say, important things to say. And, um, and I think it's immensely suggestive that someone living in the year 2021 who perhaps is feeling doubtful about themselves, perhaps they write and perhaps they don't, and while it's possible for them to find a poem or an essay or just talk to someone who might commiserate with them, who might understand what they're going through, I think it's an immensely powerful and important thing that they could read a poem that was probably written around the year 1595 that begins with an image that they can no doubt relate to immediately. Weary with toil, I haste to my bed, the dear repose for limbs with travel tired, but then begins a journey in my head to work my mind when body's works expired. Um, that is, uh, that is it right there. I don't, uh, in a way that is what poetry really does. That is what anything that lasts in the culture does. I think of Vermeer. Um, on the one hand, you might have uh, an art snob out there somewhere who, who says that uh, only people who have seen Vermeer's in person can possibly understand him. Only people who have studied Vermeer and read all of the books can possibly understand him. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there is just the image of someone somewhere uh, buying a used book about art from a store and it ends up on their coffee table or their side table in their living room and uh, every now and then they open it up and they see Vermeer's woman pouring milk or the woman reading a letter or any of those wonderful pictures of women standing by the opened window on the left hand side of the frame and doing something um, uh, or the chance encounter that a young person might have with something like this that leads them uh, to something that defines the rest of their life. 
Um, I think of Dante in the same in the same way. Um, I remember reading a long time ago a, a, a ridiculous review of a translation of Dante's Divine Comedy, in which the uh, the reviewer said that uh, students every year in college are deceived into thinking that the paperback they're holding is actually Dante, when of course it can't be Dante unless you know Italian or, or some better translation. Um, but in fact, uh, something as powerful as Dante, or something as powerful as Shakespeare that can uh, help people in their lives or become touchstones in their lives, they don't exist or persist in the ways that we have been given to believe about things that are important or things that are famous. People remember Hamlet holding up the skull. If people ever read anything of Dante, it's probably uh, just Inferno. They don't go much farther. Um, or, in my case, the thing that got me onto Dante was seeing Brad Pitt trying to read Dante in, uh, in um, the movie Seven. And that is what got me to find my paperback that I, in a deluded way, thought was actually Dante. Um, these things live in fragmentary and bizarre ways, and that is how they persist. If you want to talk about importance, um, it is how things continue like a little wavelength that you can sometimes barely even measure, and yet it's under there, these things that crop up and uh, suddenly they catch hold of you again. You can think of uh, any piece of music, a book, a painting, or just someone that you have spoken to that, uh, that, that meant something to you in a moment. Um, that is real power and real importance, at least to me, not, not the person who was able to change the laws or someone who was able to write some imaginary poem that was able to convince whatever social injustice that we're uh, upset about now from suddenly disappearing. It is the uh, it is the substance underneath the loud echoing noise of whatever is popular or famous or infamous right now. And this last part uh, will take us back even further. This is from Virgil's Aeneid, from Book 6 of Virgil's Aeneid, uh, written, I believe, around 30 BC or so. And this is one of those books that did have great importance on its culture. And of course, it influenced Dante and has continued influencing poets on up till now. It's also interesting to note that uh, the last book of Seamus Heaney's that was published uh, after his death was his translation of Book Six of Virgil's Aeneid. He had a great attachment to it, in part because uh, of Heaney's relationship with his own father that he wrote about in many moving poems. And this is the scene in the Aeneid when Aeneas has uh, gone down to the underworld and meets his deceased father there. And, and I ask again, uh, how long is how long ago is 30 BC, more than uh, about 2,600 years uh, or 2,060 years ago. 
um, how can we not if we uh, if we take the challenge and if it is something that we want to do how could we not see the example of something like this scene and try to resurrect what it does in our own day to try to make poetry important in the lives of other people again um, I don't uh, live under the illusion that that is my job. Um, if anything, I see myself as holding a page in a book that someone else will finish for me. I don't uh, see a way for anything of mine to um, really have that effect uh, right now in the moment. But reading something like this gives you hope uh, for the future in a way because of what it says. Uh, about the past. These things come around and go again, and eventually all of the fads and all of the influences and all of the pressures and all of the anxieties that seem so overwhelming and so ubiquitous right now disappear, and the thing that rises up sort of like boiling water um, is a scene like this of a son finding his father in the underworld. And this is what it says. But in the deep of a green valley, Father Anchises, lost in thought, was studying the souls of all his sons to come, though now imprisoned, destined for the upper light. And as it happened, he was telling over the multitude of all his dear descendants, his heroes' fates and fortunes, works and ways. And when he saw Aeneas cross the meadow, he stretched out both hands eagerly. The tears ran down his cheeks, and these words fell from his lips. And have you come at last, and has the pious love that your father waited for defeated the difficulty of that journey? Son, can I look at your face, hear and return familiar accents? So indeed I thought, imagining this time to come, counting the moments, and my longing did not cheat me. What lands and what wide waters have you journeyed to make this meeting possible? My son, what dangers battered you? I feared the kingdom of Libya might do so much harm to you. Then he, my father, it was your sad image so often come that urged me to these thresholds. My ships are moored on the Tyrrhenian. O oh, Father, let me hold your right hand fast. Do not withdraw from my embrace. His face was wet with weeping as he spoke. Three times he tried to throw his arms around Anchises' neck, and three times the shade escaped from that vain clasp, like light winds, or most like swift dreams. And so, as I end this last podcast that I'm recording in the year 2021, and the first one that we'll post uh, in the year 2022, I just say again, um, I wish that poets understood that the general population could have an interest in what we do, and that 
it is possible to not just be speaking to each other, that it is not a delusion that poetry could be something powerful uh, in the lives of people if the poets who want to do these things and who are able to do them found a way to get the work done. Um, it is possible to do, to write something like that uh, in our own way um, that can match that, that can, uh, that can do what Virgil has been doing for the last more than 2,000 years. And so I'll leave you with that and a happy new year. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.